Let's open in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can come again to a day that is set apart from the, the rest of the week, the Lord's Day, a day to worship you, a day to fellowship with your people, and to look into your word together. And I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to understand your word, and specifically on the topic of work and our vocations today, I pray that you would guide our thinking and redirect it and shape it more and more after what is true and right and good. And and we pray that even as we think about the struggle in our work today, that you would help us to see your work in our struggles um, and how you are shaping us through the trials and challenges that we face. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So here we are, week five of our class on work and vocation. If you've been with us the last few weeks, or some of them at least, you know we've been, we started off in Genesis, we've been going through really um, answering the question of why we want to work. What is, what is God's design for us in our work? Uh, so we've seen that God is a worker, we've seen that He made us in the image of God, in His own image to serve Him and to serve others by cultivating the earth, by serving others, and ultimately doing that as His image bearers to reflect His glory and to fill the earth with His glory. That was the original vision of work, of how uh, really we saw it started before the fall. It wasn't something that came into the world because of sin. So, you know, some of you are probably, if you've spent any time in the workplace, maybe have had... A struggle with cynicism as you hear about all this, you know, the good of, of what work was made to be. Um, last week I was talking to a couple CHP officers after the service, and uh, one of them was telling me about a, a case that's going to trial after many, many years of going through the process. And I made some comment about how it would be good to finally see justice done. And one of the officers laughed and said, um, Something like, you know, the only time I, we see justice being done is when we impound someone's car. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that is just that it just seems like, you know, they have a, there's an ideal of wrong being, being made right and injustice and wickedness being punished that we all know and, and desire and can look to. But the reality of life in this world, that, 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 real, that ideal is very is not often realized. And even when it's realized, it's not realized fully or fairly or there, there's problems with the, with the system. And, and you could just take that... Today we're going we're gonna to think about that reality, which doesn't just affect, obviously, the law enforcement world. It affects all of work and all of vocation, whatever area of life we're thinking of. So this week we're thinking about how work becomes fruitless and pointless and then next week, how work becomes selfish and idolatrous. And both of these weeks, we're really answering the question of why is it so hard to work? You know, on the one hand, we, we want to work. Work's a good thing that we get some measure of fulfillment from, and we can enjoy it to a degree. Uh, there's things that are good out, out of it. But at the same time, it's fruitless, it's pointless, it's a struggle, both internally, externally, and sometimes to the point that all you really feel is the struggle, where you might feel like it's a dead-end job you're in, and you just you don't see any good that's coming of it. But we'll see what the... We're gonna, I hope this is actually encouraging to see that the Bible 
the Bible doesn't beat around the bush here. The Bible speaks to this issue and actually explains better than any other narrative really why work is the way it is. So the two main ideas we're going to see is that work becomes fruitless and work becomes pointless. Um, by fruitless, we'll, we have in mind that work and human effort will be marked by frustration and a lack of fulfillment. And here we're going to start off the class by looking at Genesis 3, the curse, and how you know when Adam was, went to work the ground, instead of just producing its bounty, it's now producing thorns and thistles. There's going to be frustration, there's going to be a lack of a fulfillment of those goals and desires that we have for our work. You know, you all experience that in little ways. I'm sure you plant a garden and you don't realize what you wanted to realize and instead you get weeds and the, the bugs come and, you know, everything, it falls short of your desires for it. And then secondly, we're going to th- consider how work becomes pointless. And here we're going to actually start, we're going to look into Ecclesiastes and we're going to consider that even if your work is not fruitless, in the sense that even if maybe you do achieve great success in your work, maybe things go well for you, you become very prominent, successful, you accomplish great things, Um, it's ultimately pointless if life under the sun is all there is. You're just going to leave it to somebody who comes after you, and it's not going to last if life under the sun is all there is. So, we're going to, those are the two main ideas that we're going to consider. You know, it's thinking about how life is pointless. You know, you might think about, you know, you're in the middle, perhaps, of, of a vocation or a career or a calling. But now think about your great-grandfather. You would have had a few of them, uh, four of them, if I did my math right. Do you know what his vocation was, what he did for a living? I mean, maybe some of you do. I can think of one of my four great-grandfathers. I knew what he did. But, you know, all of us are... I just had to order death certificate. I'm trying to get this lineage thing for something, so a reason, but um, it said on my grandfather's uh, death certificate that he was a furnace tender. He worked at Bethlehem Steel. <laughs> furnace tender. I just thought he shoveled... Yeah, shoveled coal into a furnace? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And I believe that his father also worked for Bethlehem Steel and probably did the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in that case, you do know what he did, but for many of us, you know, as history goes on, we just, our work, it just, it, um, in a sense, it passes away and that we're not going to be remembered. We're not, you know, even though the things that to us seem so pressing and urgent and important right now are going to pass away. So we'll start with Genesis 3. If you want, you can open your Bibles to Genesis 3. The great plot twist. When you thought everything was going well, just like good good human story, you know, it starts off with a, you know there's a setting. You there's there's some you know things seem good and and then there's a a turn where a conflict is introduced. All those human stories are just modeled after this true story. Genesis three. I'll just read starting off verses one through six, and then the question I'll ask is how does this ancient serpent, the deceiver, deceive Adam and Eve into rebellion against God? So Genesis 3, starting at verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So how does the serpent deceive Adam and Eve into rebellion against God? Remember, God had told them not to eat of this tree. What are his strategies or steps he takes? Sowing seeds of doubt. Mm-hmm. Sowing seeds of doubt. Yep. Did God actually say? Did, did God really say that? And what else? What, what, what did you mean by that? Any other seeds of doubt that you saw in there? Not only questioning God's word, but also we see him actually questioning God. Like, God's not really good for you, right? Like, he's actually trying to withhold something from you that would it would be good for you. His design, his plan for you, it's missing something. Anything else? Um, she's trusting, like, her own what she sees. Right. So he plants that seed of doubt, and then she looks and goes... Right. Why wouldn't I eat that? <laughs> yeah, verse 6. She saw it was desired to make her wise. It was a delight to the eyes. And it was good for food. Yeah, these all seem like good things. She's trusting her own judgment and deciding for herself how to arbitrate what's right and wrong. Uh, I like, well, I don't know, like is the proper way to say it. How um, Satan's basically gaslighting. <laughs> He's like, you're, you're crazy. God didn't really say that. Yeah. He's a liar. Yeah, he starts by questioning God. Narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> and then he actually contradicts God, and he says, you shall not surely die. That's what's the opposite of what God said in Genesis 2.17. You eat it, you'll surely die. So he goes from questioning him, casting these doubts, then actually just contradicting God. So we see she, she judges she judges by her own standards. She takes the fruit, she eats, she gives to her husband. And now we read about the devastation that results from this deception. So starting in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, Already here, we're seeing the effects of sin that have wreaked havoc on Adam, on Eve, their relationship with God, and their relationship with the world, even. So, how do you see, what are the effects that you see even, even here? All of the details are important. Isolation. Isolation. What do you mean there, Johnny? They're, they're hiding from the Lord. They're trying to do it on their own because they're afraid. Yeah. Isolation from God. And you said, mentioned that they're afraid. I think, I mean, that's the first time fear is mentioned anywhere in the Bible. There's now, they're motivated, they're hiding from God out of fear. What else comes into the world? Shame. Shame. Yeah. They, first thing they did, they found some fig leaves and they used them to cover themselves up. Blame. Blame, yep. Good shame, probably all. I just saw, I saw self-preservation in it. Yeah. In the covering up, like, oh, we can, this is what we'll do to try to fix the issue. Right. 
Yeah, I think that's important, Paul, your point. I mean, self-preservation, even just, they're now looking, I mean, both both of these actions, um, they're, they're looking inwards on themselves now. They're, there's a self-orientation that was not there previously. What else? Anything we missed? Some of what, Johnny, you mentioned isolation from God, and I guess blame kind of gets to this, but you see also the, the disharmony now, not only between man and God, that they're hiding from God, but also Adam and Eve, that instead of Adam caring for Eve, he's doing the opposite. He's throwing her under the bus. <laughs> so, um, you know, disharmony between man and, man and woman. All of this comes from the fall. It's interesting also, you know, he says that he used the fig leaves. God gave him the earth to, like, care for it and to steward it, and now he's using the earth, the, the trees. He's hiding in the trees. He's using the fig leaves to cover up his shame. So now there's a, a twistedness even of, even of the created world. It's not necessarily just being used for good purposes anymore. It's used to, for selfish purposes, yeah. So the, everything's basically coming apart. There's, we could go even further. Uh, fear, shame, and I guess the other thing is guilt, which you know, is motivating him hiding from God. Which really, those three, fear, shame, and guilt, are, I mean, that just, all cultures deal with those in different ways, but those are inevitable res, res, result of sin. So the Lord God comes to them, he, he speaks to them, and He then pronounces this curse upon them. So, now that's the context for Genesis three fourteen through 17. Would someone want to read for us those verses? The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Thanks, Johnny. So there's three sections here. 14 and 15, the Lord is speaking to the serpent. In 16, he's speaking to the woman. And then 17 through 19, he's speaking to Adam. Uh, 14 and 15, we'll, I'll just mention briefly. I mean, some of you probably know this, and it's um, but these are very, very famous verses are called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Like even right here, right after, in the midst of judgment uh, upon sin, and that after Adam and Eve have done what they can to mess up God's good world, he pronounces this message of hope. In the midst of this curse, so there's judgment on Satan for his sin, and, but then in verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that verse becomes almost like a, a, a harmony that you just hear repeated throughout the storyline of the Old Testament. Where's the seed of the woman coming? This offspring or seed, it's translated those ways, different ways. Well, where's the offspring of the woman who's going to come, who's going to bruise the head of the serpent? And the bruising the head is, is a mortal wound. The bruising of the heel is not a mortal wound. So that's, there's judgment on Satan, and that really sets the, the, the course for really the whole 
storyline of, of redemption. But now we look at verse 16 and then 17 through 19. And I want you to remember, what was God's commission his, to Adam and Eve? Genesis 1, we looked at this a couple of times, but Genesis 1, 28, uh, he said he made him in his image. And then what were the things that he told them to do? Be fruitful, Be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over, rule over the fish, the birds, the sea, the earth itself, plants that, that yield their seed on the face of the earth. So multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. So multiply and filling it, meaning procreation, have families, um, love one another, and fill the earth as God's image bearers, and then subdue the earth as you fill it. You're actually going to, through your work, your labor, you're going to subdue the earth. So it's interesting, now I notice here, it's in those exact areas where God had commissioned them to be his image bearers, that the curse affects them. First we see in verse 16, so thinking of multiplying and filling the earth, now God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So I can't speak to this from personal experience. Many of you know, women, you know, the pain of actually, there's actually, I think, here in mind, both the physical pain of bearing children, but I think also that's symbolic for all of the struggle that we're going to face in the raising of children, that there's physical pain in bringing forth children, but there's also then struggle of sleeplessness and conflict and really just the way that sin wreaks havoc on that good work of raising children. But not only the work of raising children, but also then your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The harmony between a man and a woman that was intended, uh, that was uh, existed between Adam and Eve in marriage, is also disrupted. And instead of joyful authority and submission, we see a conflict in, in the home uh, between the wife trying to lord over her husband and the, and the husband being authoritative and tyrannical and not, not loving and, and leading his wife as he should. So we see the curse affecting the family, um, and then we also see in verses 17 through 19, the curse affecting the work itself. So again, that's part of what God, God's original plan was for us, was us to live in harmony, to work. And we see the curse in verse 17. He says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit of the, tr- of the, fruit of the tree which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It's interesting, it's actually the ground that's cursed, isn't it? It's the the earth itself, you know, Adam, which uh, indirectly affects Adam because he's called to work the ground, but it's the ground that is directly the, uh, the object of the curse. And now instead of working it and just experiencing its bounty, he's going to experience thorns and thistles through his work. You know, you notice both, both of them, both the woman and the man, are said to experience pain now in these areas of their, their calling. The woman's going to experience pain in childbearing and pain in bringing forth children. The man is going to experience, Adam is told he's going to experience pain through the eating of the earth, um, the work that is involved in bringing forth food from the earth. Yeah, Raymond? Yeah, just there's so much deep and important theology in just this little section here. Yeah. A lot of people, it, you don't catch it unless you're paying lots and lots of attention. Um, curses around because of you, for out of the ground you were taken, you know, you, you were part, this is part and parcel. Right. This is our, our, our era. I think that it's important to note, although it's not necessarily part of this particular discussion, that God says to the serpent, because you have done this, and he says to Adam, 
because you have done this. He doesn't say that to the woman. He just says, this is going to be the consequence. <laughs> this is the result. Because this stuff has happened, because this guy did this, and because that guy did that, this is what's going to happen to you. Right. Yeah, you remember I drew this little you know, artistic rendering of... Um, <laughs> of uh, our calling in the earth we can think of it in these different relationships so we have a vertical relationship with God we have horizontal relationship with one another and then we have the relationship of stewardship of the world that God made and you actually see in this story I mean in Genesis 3 all of these are now marred by sin they still exist we still have all these relationships but they're all um, broken our relationship with God, we're, we're isolating, we're, we're hiding, we're not trusting God. Our relationship with, the, with each other, there's no longer harmony, there's um, selfishness and disharmony. And a relationship with the world is going to be thorns and thistles. So there's really no area of life that the curse does not affect. It's universal in scope. And this is results in what to us was a good thing, work, being part of how we're supposed to image God, actually becoming one of the areas of greatest frustration in our lives. So thinking about the curse, I just want to ask then, you know, we can kind of think about the way that the curse affects our work. And I want to, broadly speaking, kind of separate it into two categories, although there's overlap. There's those things that are out there in the sense that they're outside of your control, they're outside of you, they're part of the world that you inhabit and the situations and companies and things that you're in. And then there's the things that are in here, the things that are internal to you. So what are some of the things that are out there that affect your, that are affected by work, or by, by the curse, sorry, areas of your work? In other words, how do the thorns and thistles, like, that's obviously an agrarian, you know, a farmer is going to actually experience thorns and thistles. Most of you, maybe some of you have gardens, but most of you are not by vocation farmers. I don't think any of you are. So, But the thorns and thistles, obviously, they still affect your work. So what are some of those things out there, those thorns and thistles that raise, you know, that poke up through the ground when you're looking for tomatoes instead? I think the massive quantity of interpersonal challenges, mm-hmm. co-workers, yeah. whatever, that just intensifies... Right. Yeah, I think that's huge. The conflict between sinful humans. You know, if you, some of your parents, you know, you, you tr- your child misbehaves, um, misbehaves, and you think to yourself, like, I can't believe you're doing that. And then you, you know, maybe later you realize, wait a second, I believe they're totally depraved. They're, it's actually not that surprising that they would act in a sinful way. Well, maybe you forget that. I know I do sometimes, and I deal with a person, client, a human. Uh, an adult who's acting in a sinful way who's acting selfishly who's covering up their mistakes to try to make them look better and other people look worse like that happens all the time in the business world and like it it seems it sometimes it surprises me but then if, you, if your theology is correct it shouldn't surprise you I mean that's just that's part of the curse so out there you have conflict uh, what else you know I'm like work is actually work yeah it's like no longer easy to do whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, by the sweat of your face. It's going to require, it, it's hard. Yeah. And then um, opposites internally, laziness and just not wanting to work. Right. And I'm going to put that over the in here category. Like, But you're right. Yeah, laziness is part of the effect. Go ahead. Business is fine, but you've got to understand that the competition 
fierce when you're working as a company man. It's not, yeah. there's no cooperation a lot of times. Uh, it's cutthroat. Right. Uh, not even by necessity, even. Like, right. We are, we're all somehow convinced that we got to play this game where in order for me to win, all the rest of you all got to lose. Right. And everybody ends up losing that way. Yeah. Slow internet connection. <laughs> yeah. Inefficiency. I think that when uh, I joke to my employees, like if something goes wrong, like we have an hour-long meeting that should have been a five-minute phone call, and I think it's thorn- the thorns and thistles. They're uh, every way that inefficiency and things that you want to achieve get frustrated, and then they don't happen as well as they should. It's the thorns and thistles. So there's a lot of ways that thorns and thistles raise their head in, in the world, um, and we're going to think about those a little bit more in a second, but um, we're, next week we're going to think more about the things in here. So you know, there, we need to remember, if our theology is good, that it's not just out there. It's not just inefficiencies and problems in the world. It's actually problems inside of us. We're now going to be lazy. We're going to be selfish. We're going to be idolatrous, hypocritical, ignorant. You know, we're going to actually contribute to the problems. <laughs> we're going to be the cause of other people's inefficiencies at times. I mean, it's all just, uh, we're, you know, we're not... We don't escape the, the judgment here, hypocritical, and so on. So, any other questions or thoughts on that? I, I put up my own answers here, but fruitlessness, pointlessness, inefficiency, conflict, misuse of creation, and then in here we've got shame, guilt, fear, selfishness, idolatry, and then all the things that you do out of those things. When you're afraid that you're going to look bad, when you're afraid that you're going to lose your job, when you're... Uh, ashamed, embarrassed for a mistake you made. You know, it motivates all kinds of sinful responses in you and in those whom you work with. Hopefully for you, if you're a Christian, you have a sanctifying process where you're then dealing with your sin. But not all, I mean, we mess up too. I mean, that's part of God's sanctifying process in us. So I'm going to move on to Ecclesiastes now, but any other questions or comments on Genesis 3 and how the curse affects our work? Probably add one more to that. Fatigue. Fatigue. Or about two or three o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. And distracted, like not having the right focus. Right. God. Yeah. Right. You get a brain brain fog. Yeah, there's probably both an internal and an external. Where there's all these distracting influences, but then internally... Are you going to say something, Steve? It's just almost ironic that most of us have jobs that are necessitated by the curse. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. true. I mean, almost. Yeah. A lot of us. Yeah. Yeah, that is a, a good thing. I mean, there's it's probably a mixture of something. I mean, but you're right. Like, you aren't, you're not going to have impure water if you don't have sin or problems, right? Uh, I mean, we have seen, though, a few weeks ago, or last week, there are things, I mean, before the curse, there was, the intention was human society to flourish and grow, but now that's, human society is, every part of it is disrupted by the curse, so. It's hard to even speculate, it's like being a fish inside the, the, the stream. What is it like outside of the stream? Like, what would work be like in a society where there was no sin? 
it, I think there would heaven. It would. It's just going to be joyful, and I mean, I think there's. Yeah, I think. Right. Yeah, the way we see, at least, I mean, in Revelation, the storyline of, I mean, everything we've seen in Genesis would lead you to think that we're created as image bearers to work, to be productive, to image God in that way. But and everything, everything you see in Revelation is actually it's very earthy, although it's it's symbolic. So we can't, you know, we can't be. There's an aspect of just faith and speculation that we're not we're not going to get to know for sure. But it's certainly an earthy image. It's there's a city, there's a river, there's trees, there's walls, there's gold. I mean, there's material and there's foundations. Like, uh, why is there foundations if there's no gravity? Like, you don't need a, a foundation supports a structure. Like. You know, why do you need a foundation if there's no gravity? I mean, all these, you know, I don't know. It's hard to be specific about those things, but the storyline seems to indicate there's going to be some aspect of work, of at least imaging God in creative activity, which is what it was intended to be. Now we can say things like work is work, because we know what that means. Like, we don't know what work is like apart from this, (laughs) but I think there is a, a future for it. Does that make sense, Steve, or do you want to push back on that at all? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be out of a job, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no more. Uh... Yeah. Some other people. <laughs> 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 all right. So, work becomes fruitless and pointless. Um, we go to the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> uh, we have um, the author of Ecclesiastes, who the book written by Solomon. He's kind of like a, you know, he's not like your stereotypical Christian preacher who's just teaching you biblical truth, like, didactically. He's this, like, thorny philosophy professor that starts, like, posing all these questions about, like, why are you even here? What what does it even mean? And he says things. I, I was listening to a sermon by Brian Borgman that Rich Elliott actually told me about, kind of dealing with work. But so I'll borrow this from him. But he said that that Ecclesiastes—he's quoting a commentary—but it's like an incendiary device that explodes your false ideas of the world. And he says it's like you're driving along in your minivan, and God plants the bomb that just blows up your van, and like everything that you thought was normal and just made sense is now like turned on its head. But he does that in order to lead you on to actually understanding truth and. You know, ultimately, we, you know, obviously, at the end of the book, you have his conclusion. You know, fear God, and maybe some of you remember that. What does it say? Ecclesiastes twelve. Remember the Creator in the days of your youth. Uh, doesn't it say fear God and keep His commandments? Oh, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So that's where he ends up. But along the way, he raises all these thorny questions that we deal with in our lives. You know, why are why do good people have such terrible things happen to them? Why do good people die? at 32 and leave a wife and children with no father. So, things like that. He introduces the whole project with this discourse on it where he says, all is vanity. Uh, We'll look at that in a second. And then he takes on these three kind of life projects where first he tries to see what's the meaning of life by living wisely. Secondly, he tries to see uh, what's the meaning of life by pursuing pleasure? And then thirdly, and most applicable to us, he's going to see what's the meaning of life by just working hard, by accomplishing much, by really pouring himself into his work. So those are going to be, we're going to, we're going to start with just this introduction, all is vanity, and then we're just going to look at these verses in chapter 2 about his project of working hard. 
So in Ecclesiastes 1, 3 through 11, here's his introduction. Actually, it's 2 through 11. But he starts off, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's almost, that's like his thesis for the book. Although even in that thesis, he's raising questions like, why is, how can you say that about God's good world that he made? But verse 3, he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's right out of the gate. He's leading all his vanity saying, why do you work so hard? What do you gain from it? You you work so hard and uh, what comes from it? A generation goes, a generation comes, the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to its place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. That's, you know, words of encouragement for, you know, you young men who are off, like, I'm going to go off and, you know, conquer the world, and you know, make a, make a career, and you know, you know what you've done has already been done before. Like, there's nothing new. You ha- you're not going to do anything that hasn't already been done before. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So, just like you probably struggled to remember what your great-grandfather did for a work, so you will be forgotten in the pages of history. So, that's the introductory question he's asking. What do we gain by all the toil at which we toil under the sun? And that becomes a, um, this under the sun is kind of a, a, a key phrase that he uses, where he's thinking of life just as we experience it now, basically without, without thinking of eternal things. What do we gain by all our toil under the sun? This word vanity, it's kind of a, it could also be translated breath or vapor. It, could, it has in mind not only the, like the futility of life, but the, brevi- the, the brevity, the transitoriness of it. It's all just, it's so short, it goes by so quickly, and then it's gone. So, why do we need, care about work? And that's kind of what, remember, remember um, if you were here at the introductory week in First Thessalonians, there was kind of the same thought process, like, you know, Jesus is coming back soon, this life is so short, why do we need to work? Let's actually find ways not to work and be idle. And that's where Paul says, if you're not willing to work, then you shouldn't, you're, you shouldn't eat. We see that even rising up in the New Testament. But in Ecclesiastes 2, someone I want to read for us 18 through 23. This is where the um, author here, Solomon, gives his autobiograph- autobiographical account of when he threw himself into his work. What he, had, what he accomplished by it. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Yep. What has a man from all the toil and striving apart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow 
and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Yeah, some of you maybe can relate to that. That last verse 23, his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. So in the day, it's a struggle, there's conflict, there's problems, it doesn't work the way you wanted it to, or someone else causes sorrow in your life because of how they treated you, Uh, your work is a vexation, it's it's a struggle. And then even at night, when you take a break from your work, your mind's still going about what happened. And the, the stresses, the challenges you faced don't even give you the rest that you want. So if that's the case, if work is that way, then like, why not collect a government handout? Why not just go out, you know, find some way to live off the system if you can? Why should we toil under the sun if it's going to be hard? That's the question he's asking. It's not... And before we just like, I mean, we all maybe have our Christian answers that we can give to that, but it's it's worth feeling the weight of this. I mean, he kind of intentionally puts these thorny questions out there, and we want to feel that in our soul a little bit, you know, because we're living in this time of tension, which happened all the way since Genesis three, where God, you know, in Genesis one and two, the world's a good place. We're to call, we're called to image Him, but now there's sin, and now because of sin. This is our experience. So now we've got these, these two threads of life is good, God is faithful, he's, he's, he's provided us good work to do, and that work is now so tainted by sin, it's hard to even understand it sometimes. So The author of Ecclesiastes, though, he goes on, he gives us, throughout his book, he gives these little glimmers of God's answer to these, these struggles. Even, so in the following verses in chapter 2, 24 and 25, he gives part of his answer... And then he repeats that in other places. So here's chapter 2. I'll I'll go ahead and read 24 and 25. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And then in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, What gain has the worker from his toil? Remember, that's basically the question he asked at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, is what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You know, one of the things in our day that I think um, makes this so difficult for us to... um, You know, we have the freedom, we have such freedom in our country... Some such wealth in our country that um, it's no longer your work is no longer just what you do because your dad did it or because you had no other choice or because you're stuck on the land that somebody else owns and you just have to work it. You now have the freedom to find your meaning and purpose and identity through whatever you want, which you know leads us to think, well, I need to find a, a Find a, a work, a vocation, something that's really going to fulfill me, something that's going to make my dreams come true. You know, the, find what you love to do and you'll never work a day or something like that. I mean, you know, you're going to find this dream job um, where you're going to be fulfilled through your work. Uh, whether that's, you know, I'm going to go do something to really help society by going into ministry or nonprofit or 
something like that, or I'm going to do something where I can make a lot of money and get a lot of, uh, or gain a lot of prominence. So we have these high expectations for work, and then we bump up with just the reality of work in a, of the, of work in a fallen world where things don't work that well, that God, there's struggle, there's sin, and it doesn't, you know, sometimes you, you work hard, you build something great, and then maybe it was Steve who mentioned this before, like, say you set up a, a system that works really well, and then you retire, and the next guy comes in after you and just changes it all. He just gets rid of it all. <laughs> like, um, I mean, that, that's the way the world works. And so we, because we have such choice and freedom, it can lead us to think that we ought to find our fulfillment where it really can't be, that the work itself cannot provide that. It can't define us and give us identity and meaning the way that our culture leads us to think. So really what Solomon is calling us to is just, in one sense, taking work down a notch. Don't, don't expect it to do more for, it, it, more for you than it can, but find pleasure in it, just in the, in the ordinariness of the work itself. If there's, sometimes that might be hard, but look for the little ways that you can see good things in your work, whether that's just even caring for one individual person that you interact with. You can see, you can love them, you can see good in that, or you know, whatever your area of work is, in the simple, ordinary things, you can take pleasure in it and see that this is actually... God's gift to man. Do you want to add something, Ray? Yeah, well, I just wanted to note the uh, <clears throat> shift in perspective. You know, um, Solomon talked about being under the sun, or a metaphor for apart from apart from God. Apart from God, we're just running around in circles. It's futile and meaningless, and it, it just why 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 even bother? Yeah, you know. But with a consciousness of God and, and higher things. There's a dignity inherent to moving within the cycles of that, mm-hmm. you know, and and it, it may not like after I'm gone, it may some idiot gets hold of my stuff and does dumb things with it, but that's not what's what's important. What's right. important is that I'm doing what God has put in front of me to do with all the power He has supplied me and finding enjoyment in it. Right. So there's a dignity in moving in cycles. There's a futility in running around in circles. Yeah. Yeah, when our de- identity is grounded in who God is and who He's made us to be, then we don't have to find it through the work itself. So there's more that could be said on Ecclesiastes. It's a there, it, Travis taught a whole class on it. It's a it's a big it's a big endeavor. But let me just point to one other verse where Solomon shows us a couple of the ways. You know, I like to in most areas of life. There's like you know, two sides of the road you can fall off it. What's the saying? You know, you can, there's a ditch on both sides. Um, so, um, you know, he's in chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, he's reflecting on some of these things as well. And he says in verse 4, I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So, again, a lot of our work is motivated by selfishness, which is vain. <laughs> then he says in verse 5, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, that's kind of provocative language, but um, I think what he's pointing out there is just there's a temptation to idleness, to, to, not, to not working, to think, maybe you think, maybe it's a, just a, like a selfishness, like a selfish indulgence type of laziness that says, I'm just going to indulge my pleasures and get what, get what I can out of life. Or it could be more sophisticated, intellectual, like life is meaningless, I, why should I work because it's all passing away? I mean, I think in both aspects, you can, you can neglect work either way. 
And he's saying the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. He's con- it's, it will destroy you if you don't set yourself to work. Then he says in verse 6, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So maybe you say, well, I'm not going to be idle. I'm not going to fold my hands and eat my own flesh. But I'm going to go after work with all that I am. Uh, two hands full of toil. I think the idea is that work is everything to you. It's something you're going to pursue. You're going to strive after. It's going to be what defines you, what makes your life matter. And he contrasts that here. He says, better is a handful, meaning one handful of quietness, than two handfuls of toil on a striving after the wind. I don't know if any of you have read Sebastian Traeger's book and Greg Gilbert's, but they do a really good job of, of and we'll get into it a little bit later in the class, but they, they talk about these two alternatives. And conveniently in English, we, have, we can make plays on words. I, I don't know, if, it must be God's intention, but obviously it wasn't wasn't written in English. God's scripture, that is. The first one is that we can be idle. We can be lazy for whatever whatever's motivating that. We can not work as we should. And the alternative is that we can make work an idol. Now we're expecting it to provide more for us than God really intended it to. And both paths, you know, lead to destruction. But there's a middle path, which he calls here a handful of quietness, which, now that by itself does not, there's more that needs to be said about that, but I think what he's getting at is that there's a, a balance between work and rest under God as, as, his, um, as his creature that is, is how humans flourish and how God made us to spend our, our time and energy on this, in this world. One thing, and here I'm, uh, I found this pretty encouraging, exciting, um, but I have to admit, like, I'm not, I haven't seen other scholars that affirmed this view. So there's a little bit of tenuousness to it. You just have to take it for what it's worth. It's, it's Ben Abrahamson who, who realized this. Ecclesiastes says all, all throughout here that life is vanity, or this is, toil is vanity. It's striving after the wind. You know, even in here in verse 7, you know, you're, you're amassing riches, but you don't have anyone to share them with. And he says, this is vanity and an unhappy business. The, the word in the Old Testament, it's in, in the Greek version that's used to translate vanity, which happens all through this book, is, is um, it's the word matayotes. And that word is the same word that Paul uses in Romans eight twenty when he says that creation was subjected to futility. Uh, it's this, he doesn't actually use that word very often in the New Testament. It's only used three times. Twice it's actually in more of a negative context of like how unbelievers live their lives, that they're, they're futile in their thinking. But here he's saying that the creation was subjected to futility. That it was subjected to... So that's translated futility here. In, we saw in Ecclesiastes it was translated vanity. Um, but it could also be brevity, that there's a a perishability to the world. And creation was subjected to it, which, you know, Genesis 3, the, earth, the ground was cursed. And that's what he's talking about here. The creation was subjected to futility, to vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. What does that language sound like? Being set free from bondage. Mm-hmm. Salvation is yeah, no, that's exactly what it sounds like. It's 
I mean, it's Exodus-type language, which, you know, the Exodus was a time when God set the people of Israel free from bondage, which was a paradigm for what He would do for us when He would set us free from our bondage to sin. And we see that this bondage to sin that we experience as spiritual blindness and eternal death and all that goes along with that is actually, in a sense, binding the creation right now, too. That it's the creation is in bondage to corruption. Things don't work the way they were supposed to. I mean, you see that... Corruption is like, it's perishable. That, that word is actually translated when, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says the perishable must put on the imperishable. That there's going to be a future imperishable body that we're going to have, a future imperishable creation that we're going to inhabit that's not going to be in bondage anymore. So in that sense, when we think of futility and vanity, going back to Ecclesiastes, when you rub up against that in your life, in work or in the home, when you see something that just goes wrong, where it doesn't seem fair, uh, or your work is all consumed by a decision that someone else made. That can, almost, that can even be like a, a pointer for you, a signpost in your heart. Like, as long as you've taken work down a notch, so you're not expecting it to be your fulfillment and meaning and purpose in life, and you actually realize that um, this is normal for life in a fallen world. And it's actually a reminder that we have a better world coming. That Jesus is going to reign, he's going to make all things right. I mean, he's reigning now, but there will be a day in the new creation when all things are made right. And this futility, this vanity that characterizes life, the brevity of it, is going to be removed. Creation is going to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The other thing that's interesting, although I wouldn't like preach a sermon on it necessarily, but um, in Matthew 27, 29... Jesus, as you, as you remember this, maybe you haven't thought of it in this context, I hadn't, but he wore a crown of thorns. The thorn, it's the same word that it was used back in Genesis 3. I think it's symbolic of the fact that really, I mean, that crown of thorns, the thorns and thistles that happened because of the fall, they were placed on his head in the sense that he bore all of the effects of sin. The curse, he bore it to Calvary. Which is why the creation will be set free, because he has purchased its redemption. So, that's we'll talk more about that later, but I found that personally helpful, and I would just encourage you to think of it that way. When you feel those frustrations, which I know you do, and when work doesn't turn out the way you want it to, let that even be a reminder to you. In fact, uh, I put this in a future slide, which well, my application slide. Spurgeon said something like this. He said, Be thankful for the thorns and thistles which keep you from being in love with this world and become an idolater as so many of your fellow men are. The thorns and thistles, when we see them for what they are as the effects of the curse and sin, can remind us that we have a, a new creation coming, that, that the world as it is is not uh, as it was meant to be. So, I'm going to skip over this. Actually, one of the things we're going to do later, starting in, I think, three weeks, we're going to have interactions with some of you that have that work, or you know, either in the in outside the home or inside the home. But you know, we see to hear from other perspectives about how fruitlessness and pointlessness and the curse and all that affects all of our lives. I know in my profession, which is in designing engineering, um, all the all the time. There's things. There's there's both good of you seeing seeing good accomplished, but then there's also fruitlessness. There's things that don't go well. There's things that got installed incorrectly and have to be torn out, and somebody has to pay for it, and there's conflict. And so 
Uh, and I know that's true for, for you as well. So especially if you're a young person and you're, you're going into a job thinking it's going to be everything to you, just, just know it's, it's helpful to have a hopeful realism that, yes, there's going to be good in it, but it's, there's going to be struggle in it just as well. I wanted to share a story that, that maybe some of you have read this. I hadn't read it, which uh, it's a J.R. Tolkien little story, which Tim Keller references in this book. Have any of you read or heard of Leaf by Niggle? All right, so Tolkien, if you remember, he was writing The Lord of the Rings, and if you've read them or read any of the like appendices, you know he created this massive world, languages and cultures and genealogies and histories. So it was a lot of work, and he got stuck on those details at times, and he tended to procrastinate, and then World War II broke out, so... He got distracted by all of that. And um, so as he was in the middle of this, trying to gain the momentum to finish off the book, uh, he was walking through his neighborhood and he saw a tree that had been cut down by one of his neighbors. And he began to think about his work as this tree that had started to grow and then was just going to get cut off because he was never going to finish it. So one morning he woke and he thought of this short story and and he wrote it down and he set it into the newspaper and he called it Leaf by Niggle. So in this story, there's, Nig- there's this painter whose name is Niggle. Niggle, actually, it, you can look it up in the dictionary, it means to work in a fiddling and ineffective way, to procrastinate, to spend time on unnecessary, petty details. And that's how Niggle was as a painter. He would uh, get stuck on certain details of his painting, and he, so he couldn't actually move on to the bigger picture. And Niggle was actually a, it was an allegory. It was, a, it was intended to represent Tolkien himself. But so Niggle, this painter, he had a long journey to make, and he couldn't get out of it. This long, this long journey that was ahead of him was actually, it symbolizes his death. So he has in mind this beautiful painting that he's going to paint. There's this tree with these leaves, and in the backdrop there's this great countryside that opens up with mountains and snow, and he has this beautiful image of this countryside that he wants to paint. But he gets stuck just working on a leaf. He sees this, he has in mind this one little leaf, and he can't get the coloring just right, and the dew on the leaf just right, so he spends all his time just working on a leaf. And he begins to get anxious. Like, maybe I'm not going to finish my painting because I'm stuck working on this leaf. But then in addition to his own perfectionism, he has this neighbor who meddles in his work. He doesn't really care about his painting. His neighbor's name is Parrish. And Parrish is always asking him to do stuff, and Niggle has a kind heart, and he goes, he helps his neighbor when he can. And one night, there's a storm, and Parrish asks Niggle to go fetch the doctor for his wife on a cold winter night, and so Niggle goes out and does that. In the process, he gets sick. So when the doctor comes for Parrish's wife, he actually comes to Niggle as well, and Niggle doesn't recover from his sickness. While he's trying to recover, he's also trying to work on his painting, but uh, while he's in the middle of working on it, the driver comes to take him on this long journey cries out, oh dear, it's not even finished. He doesn't get the opportunity to finish his painting. And his painting, his neighbor finds it after he, after he dies. He goes on this journey and takes it into a local museum. But then it, it gets noticed by a few people and eventually just forgotten. And no one sees or remembers his work. That's not the end of the story, though. Niggles then put on a train, which takes him to the heaven, heavenly afterlife. And on the way, he hears these two voices like debating how he's to be treated in the afterlife. One of them says that he wasted so much time and he didn't actually accomplish anything. The other one says that he has been kind to others. So when he arrives at the heavenly country, 
something catches his eye and he goes out and he walks out on this country and it says before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. Its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and yet he had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It is a gift, he said. Tolkien told that story to show that to give himself hope that the work that he was doing in painting this painting, in, for him writing those books, though he would get caught on these little details, that there was actually a greater reality that he was working toward, an ideal, what is true and truth and beauty that he was trying to capture. And in the story, he died without having accomplished it. But there really was a tree. There really was a reality out there. So in a sense, that gives us niggle is all of us in this, that we all, you know, whatever, we all have a, a desire for something good and true and beautiful, for things to be right. And sometimes that gets so beaten down that maybe you're just cynical now because you've run up against the pain in the world for so long that you don't even think that way anymore. You don't even dare to hope for things to be made right again. But there really is a world where things will be made right, where truth and beauty and justice will be done. And yet we're going to struggle in this life. So. Keller says in his book, some, you know, the best that we might, there might be some days in your work where you feel like you've gotten a leaf out in the sense that you've, you've made some progress on this painting, but ultimately our hopes for that are, are only going to be realized in the new creation. So just, in, I'll be quick here, application points. And when we realize that all aspects of our work are corrupted by sin, we can adjust our expectations to hopeful realism rather than idealism. Secondly, we can trust that God is even using this struggle in our vocation to shape our character into the image of Christ. Uh, We'll talk more about that next week, but that's actually even part of his purpose. His plan was for you to struggle as you you butt your head up against the curse in the the workplace and in your vocation. And he's going to use that to shape your character. And then as Spurgeon said, he says, Wherefore, be thankful for the thorns and thistles which keep you from being in love with this world and becoming an idolater, as so many of your fellow men are. Any um, closing questions or comments before I pray? And I know we're a little bit over. So I'll, how about I just pray, and then you can come talk to me if you have any questions. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, God, we, um, we thank you for your mercies toward us. They're new every day. Even in our work, God, where, which can be, sometimes be so frustrating, which can seem so pointless, um, which can seem like a waste of time or inefficient, uh, we pray that even in those moments that you would remind us that uh, we have a hope of a true and heavenly country where wrong will be made right, where King Jesus will reign and we will reign with him in a perfect world. And we pray that you would give us hope that you would help us not to be cynical, but that you'd also help us not to be idealistic, that you'd help us to just to be faithful in the midst of the struggles that we face in our vocation. In Jesus' name, amen.